Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 284. We are uh, coming to the conclusion of the month of Cheshvan. We just blessed yesterday the month of Kislev. So this week will be Rosh Chodesh Kislev. It's coming Thursday. And it's also the week of Shabbos Pasha's Teldus. Shabbos will be Teldus, but it's a week of Pasha Teldus. So, as always, we begin with something related to the time in which we are in, and in Chassidus Applied Spirit, applying it to our lives, using the most oft-repeated expression from the Rebbe in his Fabrengen, Teda Meloshen Heira. Teda comes from the word directive, guidance, instruction. Teda being the blueprint for life, life's operator's manual. So it gives instruction, instructions and guidance and directives of how to live our lives. Just like if you come home with a machine, a new piece of technology, or any type of appliance, you have an operator's manual that the engineers and the manufacturers of that machine prepared to know how to use that machine, to know what to do with it, and know what not to do with it, how to keep it up in its, in its finest uh, standard, highest standard. The same thing with life, how to live life, what way to live life in the best possible way, and to avoid the negatives that can be harmful and destructive or, dan- or dangerous, we have the Teda. And the Teda is Lashon Heira all year round, 24-7, but the specific times in the year when we are celebrating or recognizing a particular event, like Rosh Chodesh Kislev, or the Pasha Shashavu, the chapter in the week, we live with the times, and we derive from that directives that are applied to our lives. And hence the name Applied Chesidus. Just like the general organization, Meaningful Life Center, Meaningful Life, a life of meaning, of, of, of purpose, of direction, based on the mission which each of us was charged with unique, individually, as well as our collective charge, our collective calling of the entire human race, just as means of introduction. So let's start with Rosh Chedesh Kislev, since it comes first. So Rosh Chedesh, like Rosh Hashanah, the word Rosh always means it's not just the beginning of the month, it's the head of the month means it encompasses in it, it's like the central nervous system that encompasses all the days of the month, which of course include at the end of the month, the holiday of Hanukkah, holiday of lights illuminating the darkness. And before that, the Chassidish holidays, going backwards, Yutas Kislev, the Geula, Chagagula, and Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus, Chagagula of the Alter Rebbe, that became marked, the Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of a new phase in history of spreading the wellsprings, the inner wisdom of Torah, Chutzah, to the outskirts, to the farthest outskirts of the world. And before that, we have Yud Kislev, and before that, Tes Kislev. Uh, I should mention Yudalad Kislev, which is the Rebbe's anniversary, the Rebbe and Rebbe's anniversary. Before that, Yud Kislev and Tes Kislev, respectively, the Chaga Geula of the Mitla Rebbe, and the birthday and Yartzeit of the Mitla Rebbe. And of course, every day of the year, month has always special significance, but these are some of the highlights. It's all encompassed in Rishchidosh Kislev. Rishchidosh Kislev for Chassidi Chabad in the Deir Ashvi took on a special meaning in the year 1978. 1978, right after the heart, heart attack that the Rebbe had, Shmini 1977, Tavshin Lamet Ches. So Rishchidosh Kislev is when the Rebbe went home. And halachically, and many other ways, that's a significant date because it's like going out of the danger that he was in due to the heart attack and coming back to his full strength and not just full strength we know after that that Rebbe doubled and tripled his activities and his output so his Chedesh Kislev has become 
since then, a Chag HaGeula, a Chag Yem Simcha, a Yem Zgula, that uh, Chassidim get together, make Fabrengens, the Rebbe recognized it every year, and we celebrate it in that sense. What is its personal lesson to us? There are, of course, many lessons, but it means that even when we go through a setback, whatever it may be, there is always Tzimtzum B'Shvil HaGili. Every concealment is in order to bring a greater revelation. So Shkedesh Kislev signifies getting out of a difficult situation and recognizing that it all comes to bring even greater light and greater strength and more commitment. Each one of us has our own unique challenges, and each one of us, Shkedesh Kislev, teaches us that lesson. Now that's true, you can say, about any holiday, Chachanik included, that after darkness it brought light, Pesach, after the bondage, after slavery, it brought redemption. But Rishchidosh Kislev, because of its personal connection to, the, to our generation, a personal connection to the Rebbe, as the Rebbe then said, as he wrote to one of the Chassidim, he wrote that to look into Zoyar, the Hagdom of Zoyar, and you see there an interesting take, because the Chassid wrote to the Rebbe, why do we have to go through this aggravation of the Rebbe getting into such a situation, frightening us all, and finally coming out of it? And the Rebbe said to look there, and the introduction to Zoyar, without going into details, talks about a Rabchia, who was up, went up to heaven, and they saw how he's revealing Primus Satera, and they said, he, he belongs here, he doesn't belong on earth. And there was a request, Rashbi made a special request, that should give him more time on this world to finish his job. The Rebbe refers to that Zayar. So you can say that Tov Shalamet Ches, that heart attack, was in a way, whenever there's something great being revealed, there's always a challenge, or there's always a so-called kitrim sometimes, like the Yutas Kislev itself, Al-Tareb was revealing chassidus. Why would that bother anyone? But when you're bringing big, the stakes are high and you're bringing a new revelation that can change the world and bring Mashiach, there's always going to be the forces that come and challenge it. So in a way, Tav Shalom Ches, Rosh for us, is a challenge to the whole presentation, the entire vision and mission that the Rebbe set his mind to, which was beginning from Tav Yud, which is now 70 years when the Rebbe assumed leadership. Um, that the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation, like Moshe Rabbeinu, the seventh generation from Avram Avinu, to bring the Shekhinah below and bring the Geula, the last generation of Golas, the first generation of the Geula. And the stakes were high. The year Tav Shalom a year before the heart attack, the Rebbe then began publishing the Hemshachayim Beis, considered to be the ultimate, um, the ultimate magnum opus, the ultimate revelation of Chassidus in our time. And the Rebbe said it's connected to Asakona, to danger. So though we never heard it directly from the Rebbe, but Chassidim connected it, that perhaps this new revelation, the new way of approach of reaching Jews and non-Jews all over the world, right before Tav Shemem, which would be the 30th year of the Rebbe's leadership, came a certain concealment. But that was overcome, and it only taught us that we have to now double and triple our efforts, and everything that we have today was the outgrowth of the great the great light that came out of that dark moment. So Rishchei Kislev captures more than just going out of a difficult situation and growing through it, but also specifically in the spreading of Chassidus and the level of the seventh generation level, spreading of Chassidus to ways that were unprecedented and reaching literally every corner of the world. So you can say Rishchei Kislev actually gives us the power to actually do that because it was a vindication. It was like an endorsement from heaven that yes, there was the concealment for a while, but now the doors are open, the floodgates are open. Now, of course, Gimel Tammuz has come since 25 years ago, again a concealment, and yet 
the lesson of Rosh Kislev does not get erased, God forbid. On the contrary, it gives us the hope and the strength and the fortitude that now too this last concealment is in order to bring the ultimate revelation, which is Mashiach, which will be a permanent transformation of the world. And we're at the threshold, as the Rebbe tells us. So Rosh Kislev carries within it all this weight and all this significance and potency for us to tap into a day that that should give us strength and inspiration to achieve each one in our own way, something beyond that we've done till now. Not just enough to do as we've done, but something beyond, just like the Rebbe after Rosh Kislev and the years afterwards began to expand quantitatively and qualitatively his work. We, by extension, the body follows the reish, the head, we too follow that instruction. So whenever there's somewhat of a setback, or at least on a revealed ostensible level, seems so, it's in order to only create and thrust us forward with even more unprecedented initiatives in the Futsu Menasecha And hopefully we can all do so in this year of Teishnas Faratsta Pei and Pedus and all the other uh, acronyms that we hear about, but in a way that should finally break down all the boundaries and all the barriers, and we should have the Gula Ola Peretz Lefaneim which is uh, Peretz from the Pei, that the Faratsta, to all the barriers should be broken down through the spreading of Chassidus. And we should all take on new initiatives and new efforts. Each one of us is a shliach in order to do so. Parsha Teldus is, of course, the Parsha of the birth of Yaakov and Esav, Hamurim Parsha, the twin brothers, that is these two forces, these two voices, the voice of Ishtam Yeshev Aholim, the scholar, the Torah, and the voice of Ishmael the warrior within us. We all have the warrior within us. We all have the scholar within us. We all have the sincerity and innocent and simplicity, beauty that comes from Ishtam Yeshev Aholim. We also have another side that's the more sly and shrewd warrior that needs to survive in this world. And they, conf- they w- go to war with each other. That's the Yetzot Tev That's the two souls the Alter Rebbe talks about in Tanya, the animal soul and divine soul. But both are divine created. Both are children of Yitzchak and Rivka. Let's not forget that. And they're both Zelumas that are given equal powers. And the goal is for them to ultimately find peace with each other. Not just one beats the other. Because we need both. Love your God. With all your heart, with the heart is two parts, the left side of the heart, the right side of the heart, both sides. And that is too what Chassidus comes to teach us, how even the Nefesh Abam is the animal soul should enjoy divine ideas, divine concepts, divine perspectives, and divine actions as well, as well as feelings. And that's how Chassidus explains it in a way that even the animal soul can enjoy it and appreciate it. And when that's finally done, then we have the ultimate fusion of the two of Yaakov and Esav, the story of Eilat Teldus, Yaakov Yesav, Teldus of, of Eilat Teldus Yitzchak, these are the children of Yitzchak, and Yitzchak, Hashem means to laugh, laughter goes on the laughter of the future, because it will be the ultimate laughter, the ultimate, the ultimate joy and celebration when both dimensions, Yaakov and Esav are, trans, uh, are joined by Esau being transformed, which represents the transformation of all the material things in this world, everything in this hostile, war, warlike, battle-like world, and they are all influenced by and inspired by the Yaakov that's within us. And that ultimately brings, as we'll read in two chapters from now, that when Yaakov and Esau meet, 
And Yosef says to Yaakov, come join me, let's live side by side when they reconcile. And Yaakov says, not yet. Because as the Rebbe brings from Chassidus, from Teres Chaim, that Yaakov thought Esav was already refined, but then he realized he wasn't. And when he realized he wasn't, he said, this not only you go ahead, I will come slowly. And Rashi asked, what is he, lying again? No. Because ultimately in the goal of Ahoysel Hashem Amlucha, as the end of the Hefteira of Avadja that we say in that week's chapter, that week's Shabbos, tells us Ahoysel Hashem Amlucha that they will ultimately join, there will ultimately be peace between the divine and existence, between the Jewish people and the nations of the world, where everybody will be subsumed by Kimola Oriz Deyes Hashem, Kimayim Layam Chasim, a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. And we are now at the threshold at the end of that process, as we've been told and promised and made clear. So we have to do our part in finishing up the work of Tildes, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and Esav, and all the Rishchedish Kislev spirit. So this is one among many lessons that we can learn applying them to our personal lives. And uh, I want to also refer you to episodes 89, 139, 188, 189, and 234. I know it could be a little annoying, all these cross-references, but I'm doing it for the record because it's important that they complement each other. Hopefully at some point we will be able to join them all together and we have all the pieces of my life of all these 284 episodes in an organized way. But meanwhile, this cross-referencing is vital in that sense where you can have more information, more on these topics. With that said, let me make reference, of course, to some housekeeping, which is that My Life Chassidus Applied, this episode and all episodes are stored and archived at, at chassidusapplied.com, a new, unique, and exclusive website dedicated to Hasidic resources, but most importantly, making them come alive and applying them in a relevant way to our personal, emotional, and psychological lives, as well as the essays that have been written, thousands of essays that have been written over the years by people from all over the world and all walks of life in applying Hasidus to a contemporary challenge, as well as other uh, uh, archives and resources there on different Hasidic discourses. You also can submit, which is of course the heart and soul of this entire program, questions, anonymous, totally anonymous questions, which thank you and thank God continue to come in. I'm trying to keep up, but they're always ahead of me because more come in than I can, than I can answer in one week. But they will all be addressed, and uh, we, we keep making strides in that direction. So don't, uh, don't, please don't uh, be perturbed if your question was not yet answered. It will be answered in order it was received, or when I organize them in a particular structure of themes. So with that, let us continue on to. <clears throat> oh, one more! I must make one announcement. The whole, all these programs are supported by a community support which is your sponsorships your donations so please be generous and make a nice and generous donation at Chassidus Applied Sponsorship you can sponsor one or many programs in the honor or memory of a loved one please use that opportunity it, besides honoring that person it also helps us continue and expand these programs okay. being that also today is the Kinnus Ashluchim started on Shabbos the Rebbe would always say by the Fabreng started the Kinnus Ashluchim Tov Pei Shluchim from all over the world come together literally from every corner of the world, which of course is the Yofutza Maynasech and I was referring to that literally as the Rebbe Rashab had predicted back in 1901 when he said this famous Sikha Kola Yetzel Mohammed's Bezdovit, Simchus Teda that year. He spoke about that this yeshiva is going to produce students, soldiers, 
trained to fight the battleground of assimilation, to bring spiritual and Torah and Jewish inspiration to every corner of the world, and there will be these Talmidim all over the world, and that's exactly what the Kinnus HaShulchim represents, that victory, that uh, fulfillment of the goal and the vision of the Rebbe Rashab, and of course the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe who expanded it on a completely new level. So this is the Shluchim who represent the Tehrasach, spreading of Tehrasach Siddhis to every corner of the world, preparing it for coming of Mashiach, who will come when you futsu minasachal chutza. So it's worthwhile making mention of it, that this kinus is taking place as we speak. And uh, with that, let me just, uh, there are two questions that came in that are related, so I'll address it. I've talked about shlichus many, many times. It's a cornerstone of the Rebbe's entire Messias and leadership. Of course, built on the concept of shlichus, starting from the first shlichus of all. The shlichus that Hashem sent every soul to this earth on a mission. Life is mission-based. It's mission-centric, driven by a purpose, a calling, a mission that we're each charged with. The general mission that all of us is to make a dira betachtenim, to take this material world and transform it into a beautiful and elegant home for the divine. But each of us have our unique way of fulfilling that mission. That mission actually begins, as the Rebbe explains in the Sikhs, connected to Kinnus HaShlochim back in Tov Shem Mvov, Mvzayin. It begins when the Ebers, the first Eir Ein Sov that left so-called Atzmos, that emanated from Atzmos, I should say, is the first Shliach, like the Alta Rebbe says in Lukuta Teda. Anything outside of Atzmos is already a Shliach, because a Shliach means something that's being sent outside of the original source. So the concept of shlichus is really all-encompassing. Everything in existence has a shlichus, has a mission, has a purpose. But it's embodied and personified by the shluchim of the Rebbe, who actually take their bodies and souls and 24-7 designated their lives wherever they may be. This becomes their full-time preoccupation. That's their home, and they've built great, beautiful communities. So it's important to honor that, but also take a lesson for each of us, because each of us is a shliach and a shluch in our own right. So two questions that came in that, why did the Rebbe send shluchim all over the world? Is their job to provide for all Jews physically and spiritually? So the answer to both questions, so the, the answer to both questions in one, the Rebbe sent shluchim exactly as I said. The Ibrishter sent shluchim in the beginning. He put man and Adam and Eve, human being on this earth, to transform the world. All their children, their progeny, that come from them, continue this mission till the day of Mashiach comes when the fulfillment of the mission by the entire collective human race. So you can say everybody's on a shlichus. Why the Rebbe sent shluchim is because he's extending that type of shlichus to our generation, which has specific needs. First of all, the high rate of assimilation, Jews being everywhere in the world, many not knowing what it means to be Jewish. Simply lack of education or other factors. So that's number one. Simply, we are responsible for each other. Number two, it's preparing the world for the Gula by reaching everyone, uh, unity, every person we can reach. Number three, it's not just for Jews, it's also non-Jews, to reach every non-Jew possible. The Rebbe made that very clear in the Rambam, to spread the laws of Neichad, the laws of civilization, that is the foundation and the cornerstone of any civilized world and any civilized community and society. So is their job to provide for all Jews physically and spiritually? Absolutely, in every possible way. And as I said, it even extends beyond Jews. It's to bring godliness to this world, like Avram Avinu brought godliness to everybody. And there's physical ways of doing it, by helping people physically, whether it's with food, whether it's through shelter, whether it's with other ways. 
And there's, of course, the spiritual needs, which are equally, if not even more important. So the answer is yes, and it is the final frontier. Even though, as I mentioned, shlichus exists from the beginning of time, but now it's in its broadest possible sense, really across the globe. The Rebbe says shliach plus ten. Ten is the ten faculties that every shliach uses, actualizes his potential through the ten faculties. So shliach with ten equals what? Mashiach. Shin lamed yudches, lamed with the ten adds, makes it into Mashiach. So shliach plus 10 equals Mashiach because a shliach who fulfills the divine directives and by using his faculties, that's what defines Mashiach as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that through Masenu Vavadisenu, through our work and our efforts and our uh, exertion, our uh, work and our labor in this world by transforming it, that's how we bring the goal. The goal is a direct outgrowth, outgrowth or bringing Alufish Shalel and the Aleph into Gela turns it into Gula, Gela. With Aleph is Gula, like Shliach. With a Ten is Mashiach. <clears throat> More episodes where I discuss this topic are 139 and 140, 189 and 234, among many, many others, but those were designated, dedicated to the issue, to addressing the Kinus HaShluchim. Kinus HaShluchim, as the Rebbe explains, Kinus HaShluchim is bringing them all together into one Kinus, into one unity, one gathering, and that demonstrates that through the harmony within diversity, that the different cities and countries all represented, but they all come together under one Aguda Achas. So even though it's diversity, but it all comes together under one mission, under one banner of the Rebbe Shluchim and under one banner of God's Shluchim, which is all connected and fulfilling the Ardus that needs to be achieved through bringing together every aspect, Echod, like Ufaras, Yom of East, West, North and South, same thing with Echad, is Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, Echad is one, Echad, Ches is the seven heavens and earth, and Dalar of the Dalar Ruches, Yom HaVakeim, it's east, west, north, and south, all encompassed in that oneness. Okay, And of course, the inspiration and applied chassidus of this is that we each, in our own way, have to reconnect and renew our contract and renew our obligations in doing our shlichus each in our particular corner of the world. Okay, now let's go to some questions. Why do some overdo it and add extreme titles to the Rebbe? Every time, so here someone writes, Maham versus Zia. Every time I see a publication of the Rebbe's sikhus and it's riddled with Maham and Shlita, it irritates me and frustrates me. I get the feeling that it's way overdone. We all believe the Rebbe is Mashiach, but why the need to write Maham ten times in one single publication? It also frustrates me when I see Ziya too many times in a publication. Please, can you enlighten me on this matter? Ziya is Zichusi Yoganalena, which is said on someone who's passed, a tzaddik who's passed on. Well, I've talked about this in episodes 218 and in 46 and 274. I'll say the following. I, um, I agree with you. I don't think titles have to be constantly be again and again and again. You know, I use the word Rebbe, that my Rebbe, my Rebbe, he was my Rebbe, he is my Rebbe. I don't like the word titles, either title, one way or the other. They tend to be confusing, they tend to be misleading even, and they tend to create false, uh, false narratives. I'm not sure why everybody's so married to these titles. I can't explain it. The Rebbe, when you see how he refers to the Friedrich Rebbe, fine, he wrote what he wrote, but the, the, a type of obsession, I don't understand at all. To me, the Rebbe lives on through each one of us, through our work, through his teachings, and so on. 
If that's correct, he's living on a youth. You have to make a title and make a statement that he's doing that. Show, be a living example. There's no better way to show the Rebbe's living example by you living up and being the arms and legs and mouthpiece and uh, the extension of what the Rebbe wants you to be in this world. So titles tend to become very much linked to external things like primaries where they make bumper stickers and other stuff like that. And I just, I, I, come, I, you know, I, I don't know if I would say I'm a bit irritated. I'm just immune to it. But frankly, I don't see the need for it. But some people seem to have a need, a crutch for these things. I'm not going to justify it because I don't see the need. I also don't see the basis for it. Like, where do we get this from Tata? No, sometimes it says Moshe Rabbeinu Stam. Sometimes it says Moshe Rabbeinu Olav Ashalom. Avram Avinu. We don't always emphasize it. That goes to show. That doesn't mean it's, it, it, you could say it at times, but the, the obsession with it. And the same thing the other way around, to give titles. As far as the Rebbe being Mashiach, since you mentioned it already, we have halachas. I've said this many times. This is not based on whims and based on our own uh, instincts. There's halachas that determine who's Mashiach, who's not Mashiach, what stage of Mashiach and Gula. Now is not the place to go into it. I've talked about it many times. So but since the question has come up, as many others do, I'll ad- I addressed it even though I have addressed it in the past. Okay. Next question. Not particular order. It just happens to come in the next, in the next, in the order of questions. What happens to people after they die, after they pass away? So a very broad question it can mean many different things. I'm, I'm just going to just say a few general principles. I will refer you to episode 176 where I explained how do you explain to children the concept of death. But if you really want to read about this more in detail in English, in Torah of Meaningful Life, actually translated now into 14 languages, but the original Torah of Meaningful Life, there's a chapter on death and grieving which sums up and encapsulates the Rebbe's view on the matter. It's a very powerful chapter. I know a lot of people who are going through, unfortunately, the loss or sitting shiva, that, that chapter is very inspiring. Briefly, the key thing to remember here, the word death is a very uh, frightening word and a very almost misleading word. The soul never dies. The concept of death and mortality relates to the material world where everything erodes, deteriorates, and perishes. But even in the material world, nothing really disappears. We know today, you can't make anything disappear. You burn a piece of wood in a fireplace, it turns into energy and gas that doesn't disappear. It just dissipates, perhaps, and can be quite identified and found somewhere. But the basic, best, one of the best examples, very simple example, you take uh, water, a cup of water. You put it in a freezer, it's ice. You heat it, it turns into gas. And you can reverse the process many times. So you see the gas, you see the liquid, you see the frozen ice. Which one is it? Today we know it could be the same thing, just different forms. The same thing when we talk about life and death. Life takes on one shape when the soul is inside a body. And then the soul, what is called patient suda, it removes its garment called the body and it takes on another shape. But the journey continues. So it's critical to emphasize that death does not mean the end of something. It means the end of cessation of one stage as moves on to another stage. And this is fundamental in Jewish thought, especially considering that we know that the end of the will be Tchiz HaMesim, resurrection, which today is also can be explained based on the Gemara, God can create something from nothing, he for sure can create something from something, something that was alive, can be brought alive again. Today DNA and other examples show, demonstrate that it's possible. But the point being is not so much to make it rational, but the point is that it's very understandable that things really don't die. And yet there's pain because there's a disconnect. Because even if the soul moves to another dimension, it's not in the dimension we're in. That's why we grieve. 
And that soul does not have the opportunity to do mitzvahs as it once did inside of a body. So briefly, where souls go to, where, what happens to people after they die? The soul, just as where they were before they were born, where were they? The soul returns and goes on its journey, based, of course, on a lot on what you did in this world. A soul can also return. We're already now at the end of the process, so souls no longer will return. Mashiach is going to come. But through the history, souls return more than once because they didn't finish the job. So basically, the soul is on a journey, and life as we know it, biological life, is one dimension of it. And there are many, many other dimensions. That's the key thing to remember. I always give this analogy. It's somewhat a humorous analogy, but it works. Often at lack of, loss of words, when people say, where did the soul go to of my father and my mother? And you're sitting with a shiva call, loyalenu, and uh, someone asked that question. And after a while, I came up with this analogy. It just seems to work. Think of a refrigerator, imaginary dialogue between a refrigerator and electricity. And the refrigerator says to the electricity, where do you go to once they pull the plug? And what does the electricity, the electricity respond incredulously? What kind of chutzpah do you have? You ask me where I go? Where are you? Where did you come from? You think you're the center of the universe? You ask me where I go? You're a little box they just invented 100, 200 years ago. You figured out how to bottle me, the energy, energize the refrigerator, and refrigerate food. I go back to my actual place that's not enclosed and not trapped in the parameters of your box. Beyond time and space as you know it. And when you think about it, exactly right. When we ask the question, where does the soul go to? That's as suggesting we are at the center of the universe. We're, the, we're where it's at. Where does the soul go to? Maybe we're not where it's at. Maybe we're one little speck of a higher reality that precedes us and will also follow us after our stage and journey, this leg of the journey in this world. And that's what, that's what the idea of death has to help us understand and think about the bigger picture in that sense. More to be said on this. I've talked about it, as I said, episode 176, but in other places as well, because at the same time, we do grieve, as I mentioned, and, um, but suffice it for now. Okay, next question. Again, unrelated. What defines a proper Aveda in Krishma Shalamita? The bedside Shema that we say before we go to sleep. So we hear, I'm sure you've heard many times, Krishna Shalamita is a time to make a Cheshben HaNefesh, Cheshben Tzedek, an accountability. At the end of the day, you're accountable. To whom? To the one that gave you life. So just like if you're working for someone in business, you're accountable. Accountable can be daily, it can be weekly, it can be monthly, annually, but daily as well, give a report. What did you accomplish? What did you not accomplish? What could be done better? So Krishna Shlamita, which is before we, the bedside Shema, which means the prayer we say before bedtime, is a beautiful time. You finish the day's work, whatever it may have been, and you're now take, giving, giving, uh, you're taking stock. You're auditing yourself, and you're saying, here's what happened during this day. So the prayer, the main kavan of that prayer is the conclusion, obviously in order to prepare for the next day and make it, even, make it an even better day. As Rabgesh and Bepa'ara would say, as the Morgan that tomorrow should be nicer than today. But it begins with accountability. Accountability is one of the most powerful, beautiful, and noble things a human being can have. Even between people, relationships. As I mentioned many times, a relationship, trust, is not built on perfection. Nobody's perfect. It's built on what? On accountability. So you may, may have a mistake, may have a setback, you may have a deliberate mistake, but you're accountable. 
One of the worst things is a lack of accountability because that's worse than the crime. A crime is a crime, a mistake is a mistake, a transgression is a transgression. But then you account for it and you correct it. But if you deny it, you lie about it, then it begins to grow. Think of it like a small infection begins to fester and it can become very destructive. So relationships are built on accountability and relationship with God is built on accountability and so is relationship with yourself. When you're accountable to yourself, have you betrayed yourself? Are you living up to your destiny, to your calling? These are all part of the cheshman that a person makes, the kavana of Kishma Shalemit. Now obviously there are many more details. Each person can customize it and tailor it to their own particular way of doing things. And if you learn chassidus, we'll talk many different kavanas that you have at the end of, after Mairi, through Masadesh, and then comes Kishma Shlamita. Some people say Tignachatzos in that time of period as well. But in general, it's, prepared, it's concluding the day. Additional point, it's also Biyotcha Afkidruchi Padisiesi Kel Emes. In your hands, I trust my spirit. Like we say, In the morning, we say, Thank you for giving me my soul. At the end of the day, we say, I entrust, in your hands, I entrust my spirit. And that's another Hizbanus, that's the end of Shema, before Amapil, where we, where we say that, in order to be able to acknowledge um, that we, our soul is not ours, it's God's gift to us, it is the s- central force and the focal point of everything we do. And think we go into a restful sleep and we know that. We don't go to sleep with a newspaper in our nose or doing some other thing. We go to sleep with that type of spiritual cognizance and awareness. And we wake up with it. So this becomes, Krishna Shlamita becomes an integral component of a healthy life, of an accountable life, of a sanctified life, of a directed and purposeful life. And much more can be said, but these are some of the thoughts. I would also refer you to episodes 18 through 20, 258 and the episodes referenced there where I talk in general about prayer as part of an ongoing prayer is such a fundamental principle and element of chassidus. So I've talked about it many, many times and I always will go back to it because we, have, we all can use more in understanding what some may call the lost art of prayer, of emoting, the work, the service of the heart, emotional intelligence is prayer. With that, let us go to another series of questions which I believe I've never addressed before. So this is in the new category. And this actually has to do with something. First I hesitated, but then I decided to do something a little novel. And these are questions about pregnancy and labor, which of course men like myself do not go through, even though we may have witnessed it. Um, But here here are the questions, the two, in short the questions are, and then I'll read them out a bit. Are there Hasidic methods to help ease labor pains? Another question, why does pregnancy, bringing a new life into this world, need to be so difficult? Okay. So here I'm going to read out the questions in a little more detailed. Labor. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Is there anything Hasidic about how to have a calm and easy labor? I don't mean Segulis and Minhagim. Segulis are, I guess... uh, I was looking for the right word for school. It's like different acts you do that are, let's say, magical potions or something of that nature. I mean, uh, that person does not mean, does not mean that. I mean specific techniques along the lines of the modern-day approaches. For example, lamaz, hypnobirthing, etc. I want to have a natural, non-medicated birth. 
as I feel that it is important, and I feel that some of the techniques used in these methods might be similar to his bonus, etc. in Chassidus, his bonus is contemplation. But obviously it would need to be specific for going through labor pains. Birthing children is practically the cornerstone, foundation of our community, society, lifestyle, the origin of everything. So how could this not be addressed in Chassidus? How could Chassidus not have any support for its women giving birth? It would almost be like abandoning women to face this most crucial and essential challenge on their own or using secular techniques. So an excellent question. And um, I am going to give a few pointers in the answer. Then I'm going to read another question that's related to this. And then I'll share with you what I did in order to get more clarity on the topic. So just briefly, this is from a man's perspective. We'll hear soon from a woman's perspective, as I'll share with you. Chassidus does talk about it. The birthing of every child is actually compared to, or the other way around, the birthing of the Jewish people as they came out of Mitzrayim. And the book of Yecheskel actually talks about the birth pangs, talks about even the, the blood that comes from it. It talks in very explicit terms, the pain of birthing and all that comes through labor. And explains, Chassidus does explain the concept of labor. Golos is compared to Ibur, to pregnancy, and Geula to birth. And the Golos is difficult. So much of Chassidus is dedicated to this theme. It may not talk about it in the individual terms, but you can easily extrapolate it, that whatever it says in the collective sense, that whenever you need a birthing, it always will be preceded by some type of challenge beforehand because you need something new to be birthed. We'll soon talk about why there has to be that pain. But the fact of the matter is that that is very much what Chassidus talks about. So Chassidus does address it. But like always, you have to know how to apply it to the personal. As far as methods and techniques, I'll leave that, give a few minutes before I get to that. Let me go to the second question now. Nausea and pregnancy through the eyes of Chassidus. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your wonderful and meaningful broadcasts. I look forward to tuning in each week. I have a question regarding pregnancy. Many, many women experience sickness and nausea in their first trimester. I have a condition called hyper, hyperemesis, which, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but hyperemesis, which means that I experience this throughout the nine months of pregnancy in an extreme way, including sometimes having to go to the hospital, especially for the first few months, due to dehydration and insufficient nourishment. Although I know pregnancy is a huge blessing and I'm very thankful to Hashem, I have, hard, I have a hard time both physically and emotionally dealing with feeling so sick. I feel bad for my other children who do not get my best care, and, I also, and also I have trouble dealing with the physical discomfort. My question is twofold. Is there anything that Chassidus says about feeling nauseous during pregnancy? Is there a deeper significance? Could it be a good thing? My second question is, even those women who do not have such extreme morning sickness, many nonetheless do not feel very good, especially during their first trimester. Why would Hashem make it, make it the time during which we are supposed to keep our pregnancies a secret be the time when we are feeling the most ill? It makes it all the harder to feel so awful and not be able to confide in others how sick I am feeling. In accordance with Chabad Min Hagim, is there any room to tell others about pregnancy earlier on? Thank you very much for your wonderful insights. Okay, so I'll tell you what I did. To be very honest, as a man, as much as I can look into Chassidus and find answers that have his letters and so on, and I will share what I do find, I thought especially something so personal, I should ask some women. 
So I actually asked a few women in our team to respond to this, and they did. So I'm going to read a few responses. And uh, it has, I think, a much more heartfelt and much more credible dimension to it. And in truth, even though I don't always say this at the program, any question that comes up that's outside of my own personal experience, I don't like just referring to books on an academic level. Though that can be helpful, but there's nothing like also including in it the dimension of personal experience, especially we're talking about chassidus applied. So it's really combining knowledge and information with experience. When it comes to matters like this, I really felt more acutely that that was necessary. So I'm just reading a few, few comments. Let's see how much I can read here with the time, the time we have. Let's see where we are. Okay. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Just a few thoughts on the labor question. It is our custom that a husband is not so involved in the actual birthing process in a physical way. But, in a, yeah, but yes, in a spiritual way, saying to him, etc. From this, I think we can conclude with what is missing. If it is not our husband who is physically involved in our labor, then we need to find someone else to be. So far, my births have been unmedicated, and I found the technique of a doula to be amazing. If you, were, if you want to bring in the Rebbe's constant message of obviously, yes, if you want to bring in the Rebbe's constant message of Avis Yisrael, you can even call it the Avis Yisrael technique. I bring in an amazing Lubavitch woman, mother and experienced doula, and it has been a wonderful experience for me. By knowing that I have it to rely on and lean on, any anxiety is immediately, is immediately abated and I have the confidence to face labor. I also want to add that I think it is okay if labor is not calm and peaceful. I see my husband that he has to, he has to live with the curse, perhaps you can call it a challenge of Adam, making a living and having the responsibility to, to, to provide for our family. He has to balance it with the davening and learning and many other responsibilities and it is not easy. But I also see how it makes him a better person and a very strong person. So perhaps it is a curse, but I think good comes out of it. So in labor, I think it is all right if it is, if it is not peaceful and calm and perfect. We are given this by Chava, and it may be called a curse, but I think we can call it a challenge and even opportunity. And I would actually say, this is my addition, the word curse is very distorting. We're not use curse, it's cause and effect, which I'll talk about perhaps shortly. We can use the opportunity to tap deep into ourselves and find our hidden strengths. The Rebbe teaches us about crushing the olive in order to get the oil and have a flame. Without the crushing, there can be no flame. So the experience of labor can be empowering, and although it is not necessarily, not necessarily easy or calm, it can bring out strengths that we never knew existed. And I think this is an amazing way to start out meeting and parenting a child. We have tackled the labor, now we can move on and tackle the even more difficulty of raising and rearing of this precious soul. I'm not sure if this is helpful, but these are just some of my thoughts. All the best. Another woman writes, in response to my presenting them these questions, I have not seen, learned anything specific like instructions and texts, perhaps once part of Torah, Shabbat but learning Chassidus over the years has undoubtedly transformed my pregnancy, birthing experiences. Maybe we need a course on this. Sharing my own personal experience perspective, obviously, Growing a human being is making a space inside of yourself, a kind of tzimtzum, a direct expression of being created in the divine image. We are emulating God in this act. It is uncomfortable to be pregnant because in giving life nourishment to another being, our physical, physicality diminishes, but our capacity to love expands. In this process, we, limited physical beings, transcend nature. The body resists on some level here, 
But our limitless giving, soul is expressed. The body becomes a holy vessel, a giver of life. The more we are able to get out of the way, quote-unquote, emotionally, and let go of resistance to physical discomfort, even welcome it as a part of the process, the less of the suffering, less, and the less the suffering around it. There is a sensitive balance between being attuned and responsive to, own, to your own inner process, cravings, emotions, physical needs, and making space for the human being inside. Again, the paradox is godlike. During birth, surrender and letting go of control is essential, getting out of the way. Trusting the body, trusting God, a kind of softness or psycho-emotional level, on a, on a, a kind of softness on psycho-emotional level. It's no longer an idea of trust or thinking about it. It's a visceral experience of trust. During most painful moments, letting go of resistance to pain as something bad or wrong, this would be like accepting God's will without trying to wrap the mind around it. When able to accept all parts of pregnancy and birth as a whole, a feeling of trust and surrender, there is an expansiveness that happens inside, a feeling of living life in the fullest way, of being big enough, quote-unquote, to accept life in all its colors. It's also a feeling of great connection and empathy for all of life, and that is the feeling of the soul expressed in the body. So another woman in our team responded to that, says, wow, I envy your pregnancies and births. I am so not on that spiritual level. Maybe it's time to have a female guest speaker on this topic. I'm with the questioners, wondering why we are still suffering for Chava's mistake and why God couldn't figure out a smoother, cleaner, less painful approach to birth and why mothers aren't celebrated more, they, more after they give birth. There should be some kind of ritual to celebrate the mom other than the usual late-night parties of feeding and rocking the baby. All in all, I think it's more along the lines of many of the greatest blessings in our life. They come through hard work and pain and selflessness and commitment. The process continues with raising our children, etc. It's the greatest gift, but often the hardest moments. And I think many women struggle with pregnancies when they have other kids because they feel guilty that they aren't their best selves for the rest of the family. I think for that, the response would be that living by example and doing what's right and showing your family the sacrifice you're giving in order to bring another Jewish life into this world is in fact giving your family exactly what it needs. As for keeping it a secret, I sincerely don't believe that the Rebbe meant that it needs to be top secret, hush-hush, FBI material. The way I always saw it, it was meant the way, in a way that we don't blast the news, make baby announcements and parties, etc. until the baby is fully viable to protect us, the moms, to give us some privacy with our closest inner circle with this special moment, and to make sure all, this is, all is well before announcing it to the world. If a person needs, wants to tell a confident, confidant friend, by all means, if it helps them emotionally or physically, I have friends who are on bed rest from early on, and everyone just understands the reason, but again, no need to discuss and yenta and blast the news. Everyone quietly just supports and helps out. I think that was the point. That's a selection of some of the responses. I really, really would invite and would like to hear from other women and mothers what they would feel on these topics because, as I said, there's a full different credibility that we all can learn from who people have gone through it. I will just add one more thing to, uh, to the point I made earlier. This is from Chassidus. This is not from personal experience, obviously, but personal experience perhaps in other ways. It's exactly what it says, what one of the women wrote here. Pregnancy is painful because it's the beginning of creating something new. The question is, why does something new have to be painful? 
had chava, not eaten from the tree of knowledge, and Adam not eaten from the tree of knowledge, we would not have birth pains, we would not have pregnancy discomfort. And man would not have to toil at the sweat of his brow. So the question is, what does Chetet Sadas have to do with these pains? What is this, some punishment? You can't say that, because God doesn't just punish randomly. It's cause and effect. You have to understand, the eating of the tree from the tree of knowledge was not a small matter. It wasn't just a test. The tree, think of the name of the tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. To know good and evil. God said to Adam and Eve, I'm putting you into a world with this potential good and evil. But it's up to you to always choose good. Know there's evil. I mean, know in your mind. But don't taste it. Don't access it. Little children can be taught there's things that are not good. But it's in their mind. They never tasted it. One of the reasons that many people, they experiment, they think, you know what, since I know it's not so good, let me taste it. What's the big thing? Once you taste it, you lose your innocence. You're no longer the same person. Eitz hadas. It's not Eitz hachochme, not Eitz habina. Chochme, bina are cerebral. Chochme is a concept. Bina is an understanding. Das is an intimate connection. You've now tasted it. You've crossed the line. So Hashem was saying to Adam and Eve, I am giving you viscerally everything you need to do the job in this world. The Ovda Lashama, to serve and to protect, turn the entire world into a garden, live up to the Garden of Eden. Like the beginning of Basil Legani is. The place where the main Shkina is, I'm with you. You have in your gut, you sense the divine. That's why they were naked and they didn't sense it, like newborn children, innocent. Sexuality is part of a divine, a divine plan, a divine design. It's considered to be actually the most divine thing in existence. That's why it gives birth. But once they tasted from the tree of knowledge, due to curiosity, due to the temptation, the story of the serpent, I'm not going to go through all the details, they now lost touch. There became a duality. I'm, I have my agenda, and God has his agenda. And the rest of life is trying to align the two. The seamlessness would have been there. That's why Adam wouldn't have to work. Physical labor. God would provide because the world would be aligned. Since you're aligned with my purpose, the world will, prepare, will give you the parnasa you need. I'll make sure that you have everything, all the food and all the, all the nourishment and sustenance you need. The same thing with a woman. You will not have to struggle to give birth. Because you're all aligned to the divine. But once you don't get aligned, birth is a divine gift. In a world that's not aligned to the divine, it cannot come easy. It comes with pain. So the pain is an outgrowth of the duality, of a separate consciousness that was born in the psyche of the human being the moment they ate from the tree of knowledge. That's why Hashem later says, God says to Adam when he hides in Ganeid, Ayeka, where are you? What he didn't know where he was. Says the Al-Tarebi, explains to the minister when he was in prison, the Al-Tarebi explained, Ayeka is the eternal question to each one of us. I don't recognize you. You can sit near someone and say, where are you? You see their body. They're spaced out. Their spirit is not aligned with you. I don't feel you're with me. Your divine image that I created you in is now concealed, which is one of the explanations why animals will never attack a human being, it says, because they respect the divine image. So why do we say an animal can attack the human? Because they don't see the divine image. Daniel in the den of lions then was divine, so the lions left him alone. So another personality has emerged, your own personality, your own ego. That's why they covered themselves, which was sensitive. 
but it's now an, an, a world that has to align itself. So the pains of pregnancy and birthing, which are the greatest gifts in life, do not come easy, just like the pains of the birthing of the Geula do not come easy. The birthing of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim comes with the pain of Golas Mitzrayim, serious pain. The pain of the Geula, the, Geula, the birth of the Geula Mitzvah Hashlem, it comes after the pain of Golas. And the rest I leave to the experience that have spoken about their experience, and I hope some of you will weigh in as well. Okay, let's move to the next question. Why is Hairav Simon? The Rebbe Rashab revealed that the Alta Rebbe is an Er Atzmi, means an essential, a core energy, meaning not, by, not defined by expression and by any revelations. Therefore, he did not show miracles. Miracles is a sign of expression. Er Atzmi is who he is, he's real because he's real, doesn't have to show miracles. So then, is it misguided to ask the Rebbe for brachas, for refuas, panos, etc.? Thanks, mate. Now, Er Atzmi means, as the Rebetzin and Alta Rebetzin told one of the Chassidim who said, where are the miracles? He hears in Liadi, they're miracles. She says, by us miracles are so common, they're rolling around under the bench and nobody bothers to pick them up. That doesn't mean there can't be miracles. It means we don't, miracles giluim, miracles chitzenius. Can God do a miracle? Of course he can do a miracle. Can a tzaddik if he wants to do a miracle? But that's not the Chiddush of a real Atzmi. An Atzmi is emes, he's a divine expression of the divine in this world of the divine person, of Elokus, a godly person. That doesn't mean he can do it, it means he's not defined by doing it. And we're not impressed because he did a miracle. The fact that we go to a Rebbe for Baruchas for the force, so first of all, the Alta Rebbe actually initially said, why are you coming to me for Gashmis? Come to me for Ruchis. But at the end of the day, a Rebbe, he acknowledged and accepted, and the Rabbeim did accept Baruchas for Gashmis, including, sometimes we ask that they, that they help us with the miracle. But that's not because they're defined by it, that's because they have the power. And why not? A person, God forbid, is in a hospital. You can have a Rebbe intervene and pray. And actually, if it needs a miracle, let it be a miracle. If it could be done naturally, even better. So I'm not sure what the contradiction is. There could be an Eir Atzmi, and you still go to this Eir Atzmi to help you out in life, whatever is possible. Even though you're not defined by the miracle, and even if the miracle doesn't happen, as the famous story with Rabbi Shmuel Gerari, the miracle was I remained a chassid even though it didn't work out the way I wanted. Okay. Now let's do a few follow-ups. And then see this question. And uh, full follow-ups. The first follow-up was about impeachment. Well, a bunch of, uh, I can't tell you how many comments came in about that. It became very political. I, my attempt was to be non-political at all just to learn Hashgacha Pratis lessons. So I'll just read a few select based again on the limited time. All I can say is, wow, right, one, one, writes one person. While many politicians in this country are involved in corrupt practices, on both sides of the aisle, the evidence what the president has done, and he's done many things that ought to get him booted from office, but I'm specifically referring to the current impeachment charges, is overwhelming. I don't like Pelosi. I do not vote for Hillary, but I believe it is objectively clear to any honest person that Trump has violated the Constitution and should be removed from office for that reason. In the future, Rabbi Jacobson, Rabbi Jacobson, it should behoove you not to discuss politics. You say you're not picking sides, but then you do. Rather disingenuous, if you ask me. Another person responded to that and said, um, you say, in the future, Rabbi Jacobson, if you ask me, um, I would suggest you don't discuss politics. Another person says, well, he didn't ask you. Okay, I appreciate that. 
Another person comes completely from the other perspective. Mr. All I can say is, wow, what are you wowing about against a president like Trump who has been more pro-Jewish than any other president in American history? I wonder where, where, where you were when Hillary erased hundreds of emails and was corrupt as could be. It was Biden who, is, who had his son take bribes, and it was the Democrats who gave $150 billion to Iran looking the other way as they built nukes to kill 6 million Israeli Jews in nine months, nine minutes. You are either a troll or self-hating Jew with your comments. A Jew who votes against Trump is not a Jew. Okay, I read that even though I don't agree with that harshness. How did he violate the Constitution? You'd be drinking, you've been drinking the Schiff Kool-Aid, my friend. Name one thing he did to violate the Constitution aside from garbage made up by Schiff. And another person writes, Wow, indeed. Your comments is exactly what we are also turned off by. Your disdain and contempt of Trump so blinds your objectivity that anyone who doesn't feel like you is labeled political and pro-Trump. If you would only listen to Rabbi Jacobson's coherent and balanced approach without any preconceived notions, you would learn much. Anyway, others continue to write. The reason I read it, which is really against my character, I did not want to get into politics, is exactly the point. It's lessons, lessons to be learned from something. But this is exactly what I spoke about, was why do we have to get down to the mud to take sides here? What I do learn, another lesson that I would learn from this impeachment is this, that what hatred can do, it can completely blind you. And this can be applied to many areas in life. You, to the point you're completely convinced of something because you don't like something, you're convinced that you're right. It's another lesson we can learn from these impeachment hearings. In addition, I would say one more thing that someone actually did write, another lesson, impeachment, the concept of impeachment in the Constitution, regardless whether who's right or wrong, is a concept that, of checks and balances. There's no one with absolute power. Everybody's accountable. This is not necessarily applying whether one is guilty or not, but the idea is checks and balances when done right with the good intentions. So enough on this topic. Fine. Next topic, follow-up. These are all follow-ups. Well, we spoke about making a blessing on a king, whether the president has the law, the law din of a king. Now, as always, I don't come here to Paschal Shilas. I just quoted some sources. So someone wrote, when Obama motorcade came through Crown Heights, this question came up and everyone's whether he, blessings should be made, and they said no. As Taloch and Birchus regarding a king, I thought it was an interesting question, actually. Another person writes, there are other opinions about this matter. Now, I did quote Rabbi Adi Yosef, and some say there are other opinions that hold that you should make it. So let me just say this, as I said, I'm not coming here to Paskin. I quoted sources. And uh, everybody should follow up Sakova real love. If you have a source, please share it. I have not seen a source besides Rabbi Vajayesu, which I think is not with, not with shame and malchus, for the reasons I shared in the last program. But if somebody has a source, by all means, please share it with me. Um, and remember, if a president does have a dimilch, it means all presidents, not just Trump. Then it would be Obama and every one of the 45 presidents, because they all have the same position of power, whether you like them or you don't like them. Just like a real melech, where everyone agrees you make a bracha, even if it was a rasha, you made the blessing. Another thing to point out, there's also the mitzvah to lishtadl, to make an effort to find such a person. So if someone is actually din melech, no one just wait, we have to find that person. And we did not see the Rebbe do that. There were presidents in the Rebbe's lifetime, the Rebbe did not go in pursuit to find them, to make a bracha, or to see them. Additionally, the Friedrich Rebbe saw President Hoover when he was here in the United States in 1930. I believe it was uh, Yudala Tammuz when he went to see Hoover in Washington. Now, it doesn't say whether he made or he didn't make, but uh, if he had made, probably it would have been written. But again, not saying it doesn't mean so, just mentioning that. 
So again, this is not a conclusive halachic show. This is bringing the topics to the table. It's, it's relevant because there are people who will see Trump. Should an effort be made to go see a president, any president, that would be across the board. And we don't see Gdeli Yisrael really did that. Does that mean it's bound with the, the mitzvah of making a blessing? It seems somewhat connected. If he's a Din Melech, so then you have two things, to make an effort to see him and, and make a blessing. But maybe some hold that if you see him, you make a blessing. Not Shem Amachos. And I'm sure there's really opinions, but I think the consensus is not to do it. This is not taking away from the power of the president. This is not taking away of honoring him. But it's about understanding what really the Din is regarding what a Melech really actually is. Okay. There's more follow-up, but I'm going to skip the other follow-up. I'll do that next program because of time limitations. So let me jump straight to the Chassidus question. It's actually a question about a maimer, a very powerful, beautiful maimer that the Alter Rebbe said, connection to Pasha Vayera. It's really two weeks ago. I was going to do it last week, but time ran out. So I'll do it now. It's a beautiful maimer. It's called Isha Achas. It's the Haftera of Pasha's Vayera. Yesterday we read Chayesara, so it's the Haftera of last week's Shabbos. And the story is about a woman from um, Bnei Anavim, Isha Achas, Isha Achas Menashe Bnei Anavim, Tzorka El Alisha, she came to Alisha crying that her husband died and the debtors are coming to collect, they want to take away the two children as servants. And the story continues what Alisha t- tells her to do. So Altareb has a very powerful mimer which I believe is printed, yes, it's printed in Maimari Ad Murazach page 136. It was printed in Me'er Sha'arim, one version of it, which is a sefer that's around for a while. And Lakuta Sikh is volume 5, page 334, the Rebbe cited and explained it. And then there's a Maimer from Tavshim Memvov, that's now Muga actually, edited by the Rebbe called Isha Achas. It was Chav Cheshbin Tavshim Memvov. So, so it's really addressing a fundamental issue, because the Pasuk is a Pasuk. Abhil Parachar and Pasha Vayera and Palacharimen actually begins an introduction that the Rebbe cites in Lukutasichas that everything in Tayra is Hera. So, a story like this, what, what's relevant to us, what happened with this woman and what Avlisha told her, that it's about our lives. It's talking about a person, a neshama crying out due to the fact that it's feeling numb. And that's its relevance. So, the question that was asked to me. There's a beautiful maimer on Ve'isha Achaz that discusses how to deal with spiritual and emotional numbness. I'd love to hear your take on it. So I'll put it in words that I think are very palatable and very practical, but it's directly from the maimer. So let's first interpret what the Alter Rebbe says briefly. I'm not going to go through the whole arichas. Rab Hill has a whole arichas on the arichas. The Alter Rebbe is actually short, but the maimer of the Rebbe elaborates on it and brings from Rab Hillel as well and so on. So again, the story is a woman lost her husband. She comes crying to Alisha. My husband died. Um, you know that he was Avdecha, he was a servant of yours and he feared God. And now Nesha, the debtor, the creditor, I should say, the creditor who I have a debt to has come to take my two children for himself as slaves, as servants. Alicia continues, what shall I do for you? And he says, tell me what you have in your house. I'm translating it because it's just from the Hebrew. She says, your maidservant has nothing at the house except a jug of oil. A sukh shemen. So Alicia tells her, borrow vessels for yourself from outside, from all your neighbors. Do not borrow only a few empty vessels. Meaning borrow much. 
And you shall come cl- and close the door about yourself and about your sons, and you shall pour upon all these vessels, and the full one you shall carry away. And she did that, and all the vessels filled with oil until as much as she needed. That's the gist of it. Says the Altareb. The Isha Achas goes on Neshama, Knesset Yisrael. A neshama is a singular neshama connected oneness with God. Explains what B'nai Navim is because it comes from Netzach and Hay, the source and so on. Bottom line, it's a soul, a powerful divine soul. Comes crying to Elisha, Elisha representing the Novi of Hashem, Elisha, Kelisha. So it's asking for Yeshua. Something happened. My husband, which refers to the Ava Vihira, in the neshama has died. I don't feel, I feel numb. I don't feel emotional passion and connection to the divine. Furthermore, the Yetzirah, the Nefesh Abamis, which is the creditor, is coming now and in his vulnerable state and wants to take away the children. That even that which still remains with me, my thoughts, my speech and action, he wants to, not just he wants to silence it, he wants to take it away for, to be his hostages to be used for the Nefesh is for the animal soul. So, I, so I, I'm really desperate. Says Alicia, what do you have? Tell me what you have left. She has nothing, she says. There's no Giluyim, there's nothing left. But I do have a jug of oil. That's the Chochmah Nefesh. There's a divine spark that never burns out, no matter what, even if you don't have, even if you don't feel it, even if you're numb, it always remains alive. So Alicia says, that's the case, here's what you do. Take kalim reikim. Empty kalim means you don't have any avavir, they're empty. But continue to do teirah mitzvahs, even if they're empty and they don't feel love and passion, just do it even mechanically, as much as you can. And that jug, that spark that still remains alive is going to be, will come alive and fill all your jugs and your mitzvahs with oil with connection to Hashem. So don't give up just because you don't feel anything. The Rebbe says there's a second interpretation. Kelim Reikim Al-Tamiti means that Kelim Reikim contemplate on the fact that you're a clay Reikon, that you're empty. So though it's not a positive thing, but contemplating will cause you to feel a pain that will elicit deeper strengths. And those deeper strengths will reignite using that Osuch Shem and that jug of oil, that spark, and reignite the connection. That's the short of it. What the lesson is, we all have times when we feel numbness, when we feel apathy, when we feel that we don't feel alive in the divine way. So never give up. Do actions, even behavioral things, will ultimately lead. Actions will lead your mind and heart to follow. Your investment will lead other things to come into it, even though you're doing it right now just mechanically. The second thing, think about your emptiness. Think how void you are. Think how much you feel you're missing. And that itself can elicit deeper strengths. So I think it's very practical lessons in the Chassidus applied that each of us can apply each in our own particular level. Of course, it's a tremendous learning from the, from the Alta Rebbe, especially as explained by the Rebbe in the Maimur Vishachas, Tov Shemem Vov. Okay, with that, let's go straight to the three essays. Session number one is Rx Derechaim. Michael Dinnerman, age 48, Atlanta, Georgia, PEMA, emergency medicine physician. So he writes, 
the following. Do you know before whom you stand and who awaits you with open arms? Have you not heard? Were you not told from the very beginning? It's of course a posik. No, I was not told from the very beginning that Hashem runs the world. I was a bore and did not understand. I grew up in the suburbs, disconnected from religion and dismissive of religious life. My entire life I eschewed any semblance of a, of a religious lifestyle. I was oblivious to the great, mighty, and awesome Hashem. And he goes on to speak about his personal life as an American physician with a business background. And Torah was absent from the Wharton curriculum where I grew up. He talks about his own and then talks about his journey, how he slowly found Hashem, he found Torah, he found mitzvahs. And essentially teaches us how we can learn from his experience that each of us can also go through. And he learned about, and goes deeper, and even using his medicine, the anatomy of a Jewish soul, to understand the anatomy of the Jewish soul. The power of action, the power of speech, the power of thought and machshava. A really a, a very engaging essay, very personal. And uh, good, powerful conclusion. So thank you for that. Next essay: controlling your anger so it doesn't control you. So it doesn't control you. Cats. Twenty-eight years old, Saint Paul, Minnesota. A teacher. Well, like the name implies, the title: control yourself from overreaching to life's everyday pressures. Easier said than done. How can you help tame these intense emotions? when you have all these pressures. Does Chassidus have practical guidelines for us to maintain control in high-intensity situations? Psychology Today offers a full range of solutions to help deal with anger management problems. And I'm going to, I will contrast the modern approaches with the Hasidic approach. I will also emphasize how Chassidus offers a more deep and profound inner transformation to help deal with these problems. She calls it the PET method, P-E-T, Perspective Extreme Time, Changing Your Perspective, with a meditation, time to contemplate, and um, and the middle one. Yeah, I skipped the middle one. The opposite extreme. Right, extreme. Okay. Yeah, another very good essay, uh, essay, with good final conclusions. Thank you for that as well. And finally, essay number three in Hebrew is Chinuch Rebbe. Practical education according to the Torah of the Rebbe, the, the, the teachings of the Rebbe. And again, the title tells it all and goes on to explain through Hanukkah and through other examples what lessons in educational methodology. Working with pleasure, working with the inner dimensions of pleasure, making it pleasurable, making it fun. And uh, that education shouldn't just be an obligation, it should be something that really connects the person to higher levels, even though there are there is hard work involved in it. And ultimately to put and create shall have a sale may allow an independent individual who can stand on his or her own feet. It's a long essay, but again, well worth reading. It looks like coming from an educator. And this was written by Aaron Schwartz of Kiryat Malachi, Israel. All these essays can be found at chassidusupply.com. We post them as, they, uh, as I read them. Each week I read more essays going down the list of the last year's 2019 winning essays, all essays. And um, with that, we conclude this episode, My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 284. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be a very Lebedike and Simchedike and Lichtike, illuminating Chresh Chedesh Kislev and Chedesh Kislev. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Everyone be blessed and everyone be well. And this Chedesh of Geula 
and Chodesh of Light, we should be Zechi even before that to the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. Thank you.